We were grocery shopping on Friday, and I made the mistake of walking into the frozen pie section. And I love just about every type of pie there is, but they had a lemon meringue pie, and I was just looked at that, and it was on sale. So, of course, it was calling out my name. And I begin to imagine this in our house and I can, on our table and then in my mouth, et cetera, et cetera. So I bought it and we got home that evening and we had dinner and after the meal was concluded, I went to the uh, refrigerator and opened the freezer section and got out my lemon meringue pie and began to eat it. And after I'd eaten a piece of it, I happened to look down at the box and it has a very intriguing statement at the bottom of the box. Lemon meringue pie, big, beautiful picture of the pie. And then at the bottom it says, made with real lemon juice. Now, the word that really caught my attention was the word real. I mean, you wouldn't say it was made with fake lemon juice, I would assume. And you wouldn't say that it was made with some kind of other juice other than lemon juice. So why would they put at the bottom of the box it was made with real lemon juice? Have you noticed in our culture today that when you buy products that they feel like somewhere they have to reinforce that it really is what they say it is? If you get blueberry muffin mix, it'll say real blueberries in it. Well, you wouldn't expect raspberries and blueberry uh, stuff and, or fake berries or whatever. But it seems that in our culture today, there's been so much fake in everything that we've got to a place now that we feel like we've got to you know, reinforce that whatever it is that's being advertised, that this is the real thing that you're going to be biting into. Let me ask you this. For a Christian, for a follower of Jesus Christ, what should be at the bottom of the box of our lives. Made with real what? Made with real what? When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, he answered that question. He said, you and I need to be made with the real fruits of the Spirit. Not faking it, but be genuine. And the way that we are genuine followers of Jesus Christ is we yield to the fullness of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And as we do that, He produces in our lives the fruits of the Spirit. And we've been looking at those fruits for the last number of weeks. Allow me from Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, to quickly review the ones we've looked at. First of all, we saw that He produces, the Spirit of God produces in our lives love, which means a genuine commitment to each other. Now, it's interesting that he lists these fruits of the Spirit as he wraps up the book of Galatians because earlier in Galatians, in a, talking to that church, he says, you guys are biting each other, devouring each other, and consuming each other. In other words, he says, when I look at the church of Galatia, I see a regular full-fledged dogfight going on when I look at you all. And so what you guys need is the work of the Holy Spirit in you, and the first fruit he produces is love. Second is joy, and joy is our reaction to what God's doing. I look around my life, and I see what God's doing, and I focus on what the Lord's doing, and I have joy as a reaction to what God's doing. Next is peace. 
peace, contentment in the will of God, that sense of wholeness and completeness and knowing God's will and living God's will. Then last week we looked at the fruit of patience. We saw patience means having a long fuse. It's holding our temper in the face of being provoked. We're being provoked. We're being prodded. We want to let go and let loose. We want to let the tongue start flying. We want to get red in the face. We want to, you know, tell somebody what we think of them, where they can go, how fast they can get there, and all that kind of good stuff. And we choose rather to say, you know, I'm not going to say that. It doesn't need to be said. I don't need to react that way. It doesn't honor Jesus, doesn't bring glory to the Lord. And God can take care of this. Patience. Mac Brunson, who pastors First Baptist Church, Jacksonville, Florida, likes to say, God is never ahead of time, but God is always on time. God is never ahead of time, but He is always on time. And it's learning to live life not ahead of time, but learning to live life and react in life and act in life knowing that God and what He does and the way He does it is always on time. Now, today we're going to look at this next fruit, kindness. What is kindness? Well, the root of the word there is that it's a basic moral goodness that empowers us to help folks out. It's a willingness to serve others. While with patience... I'm sitting there and I'm saying, you know, I'm not going to respond to this. I'm not going to blurt out and say what I really feel like saying. I'm not going to grab hold of this situation. I'm going to let God take hold of it. I'm going to wait on the Lord in this. Kindness, rather, is proactive. It's just like that story I told the kids of the Good Samaritan. I see someone in need and knowing the presence of the Lord in my life, I walk up to that person, I move out to that person, and I reach into their lives, and I seek to help them and come alongside of them and help them get through and walk through successfully whatever it is that they are facing. It is a proactive moving into people's lives. Now, how can you and I be kind to other folks? Let me give you three suggestions on how we can be kind. And the third one, we're going to look at someone in the Scriptures who carried it out. Number one, how can I be kind? Learning to forgive other people. Learn to forgive other people. If you and I travel in human relationships, whether it's in our families, church, school, you know, wherever, jobs, we don't have to travel far before we are going to bump into each other and we're going to have to learn to forgive each other. If we don't forgive each other, then we can't move forward in that relationship. But Jesus also taught us that when we refuse to forgive, that we not only do not move forward in a relationship with another person, we get stuck at that point if we don't go back, backwards in that relationship. When we refuse to forgive, we also stalemate in our relationship with the Lord. There are a lot of good people who are stuck in their walk with God because they refuse to forgive. And so the first way that I practice kindness is learning to forgive other people. And in forgiving, I am releasing them from whatever it is that I am holding against them. It's not that they necessarily have earned my forgiveness or deserve forgiveness. It's that I am choosing to forgive them. I am choosing to release them. Now, why should I forgive somebody, particularly when we don't, they haven't earned it, they don't deserve it, they haven't asked for it? Why should I choose to forgive? One simple reason. Jesus said, do it. 
Anything that Jesus says I ought to do, I don't need a big, long explanation. I just need a good dose of obedience. So if Jesus says forgive, then I need to forgive. And if Jesus says forgive, he knows that I need to practice forgiveness in order to move forward in the relationship. Now, those of you that are married, let me share a little truth with you. Sooner or later, if you want your marriage to go the distance, you're going to have to forgive your spouse from time to time. They're going to have to forgive you from time to time. A good marriage is a marriage that has learned to practice forgiveness. Because if in a marriage you go around all the time, you got this list in the back of your mind that you pull out every now and then in an argument, you did this and you did that and you did the other, and I just want to bring it up to your attention for the 100th time, uh, you're in trouble for that. But forgiveness says, I release you from whatever it is that I'm holding against you, and I forgive you in that. Same thing in the body of Christ. If the body of Christ is going to move and function and be used of God, we've got to learn to forgive each other. And so if we want to move forward in our relationship with the Lord, we've got to forgive because Jesus commanded forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Forgive as Christ forgave you. Now when I forgive somebody, I'm not doing them any special thing in the sense that when I forgive, I'm just simply doing what Jesus has already done for me. I am practicing a grace that I have already received more because no matter how much i got to forgive somebody else, the Lord's already had to forgive me even more. So forgive. Second, how do I practice kindness? I treat people with the God-given value and dignity that they have. Every person has been given by the Lord a certain amount of value and dignity. Now, how can you say that? Some of you are thinking, I know some first-class jerks, and how in the world could they have value and dignity? Number one, every human being you and I look at, relate to, come in contact with has been created by God. Their dignity, their value comes because they are the creative handiwork of God. You don't have to agree with me in order to have value because God, by His creative work, already gave you value. Second, Jesus died for that person. Every person we come in contact with, Jesus died for them, and he measured their value by every drop of blood that he shed on the cross. I like to say he gave a body's worth of blood for all of us. So when I look at a person, I know that God created them and that Jesus died for them, and because of that, they have value, and so I treat them according to the value that the Lord has already assigned to them. Years ago, when we were living in Virginia Beach, we had a a giveaway at the church one Saturday morning. And my wife was in charge of organizing it, and there was a large retailer in the area, and they were going to come to our church and give us a ton of stuff, and we were going to, and when I'm going to be selling it, we were literally giving it away. And when my wife went to get training, the lady who gave the training, she says, now I want to warn you. She says, I know this is a giveaway, but you're going to be very surprised at the way people act. They're going to come into your fellowship hall. They're going to be able to grab everything they can get their hands on. They're going to fight with each other over some of the stuff. I just want to warn you. And she says, you're going to have to tell yourself over and over again, Jesus died for these people. Jesus died for these people. She says, that's the only way you're going to be able to get through the morning. So sure enough, it was advertised and the crowd showed up. That morning, we opened the doors of the church and the people came in. And we were about two hours into it, and my wife came up to me, and she's quoting that to herself. And I began to watch some of the people, and it was amazing to watch how people fight over free stuff. 
and I mean, they were just going at it and so forth and et cetera. And we just have to keep reminding. Sometimes you're in a place in life that you just have to remind yourself over and over again, Jesus died for these people. So how do we practice kindness? First of all, we learn to forgive. Secondly, we treat people with the value that God's given them. And third, we learn to become intercessors in prayer for them. I want us to look at a guy by the name of Epaphras from Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4 Verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> As you turn there, the book of Colossians is written to a group of folks living in the city of Colossae in modern day what we would say is, see as Turkey. They were dealing with a lot of heavy-duty issues in that church and in that city. They were worshiping angels, and they believed that some of these angels that they were worshiping were above Christ, so there was a real battle going on as to the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. They were focusing on all kinds of rules because they were trying to control their sinful habits by keeping rules instead of trusting the power of the Holy Spirit. And a guy by the name of Epaphras, who was a close associate of the Apostle Paul and had been sent by Paul to Colossae and the area around Colossae to start the churches in that area, had been working his head off. And he was just frustrated out of his mind because the church there in Colossae in spite of all of his work, was deering off, veering off, if you will, so much into false doctrine. And so he goes to Paul in Rome to get some help from Paul to try to address this situation. And so Paul writes back to the church at Colossae, and when he writes back, one of the things he does is reference this guy Epaphras. Again, Epaphras had helped start the church in Colossae, was a major leader and close associate with Paul. Now listen to what he says about Epaphras from... Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropopolis. Now let's look at this guy, Epaphras. First of all, he says he is one of you. He's closely connected to you. He's identified with you. Notice next, verse 12. He says he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the word servant there meant that he was a bond slave of Christ. And the idea of him being a bond slave of Christ is that Epaphras recognized that I belong to Jesus. My life belongs to Jesus. My attitudes belong to Jesus. All of who I am belongs to Jesus. I bend my will to him. He does not bend his will to me. That's what it means for me to be his bond servant, to belong to him. He uses a term that was used in those days of, of literally bond servants, and they had no rights of their own, but they also had no real worries of their own. The master was committed to taking full care of them. Their job was simply to submit 100% to the master. And he's saying, Epaphras, he recognizes and he understands that he belongs completely to Jesus. Now, folks, when you and I get that deep down in us, that we belong 100% to Jesus... 
We can be kind to other people. And let me tell you why we can be kind to other people. I can be kind to people who aren't kind to me because I don't belong to them. I belong to Jesus. I can be kind to them because I don't belong to their hatred. I belong to Jesus. I don't belong to their Facebook post. I belong to Jesus. I don't belong to all the junk that's there spewing at me because I belong to Jesus. And recognizing that I belong to Jesus sets me free and releases me to be able to be kind to them. I am not a victim anymore. I don't live as someone who has been victimized. I rather live as someone who has been released and been set free by Jesus. I belong to him. Now notice the description of him in verse 12. It says that he's always struggling for you in his prayers. The word that's translated struggling there was a Greek word that meant to be in a contest to win a prize in track and field events. In other words, in those days in the Greek games, when they would go out on a field and they would struggle in those games to win, and they were running down the track or jumping the high beam or whatever they were doing, throwing the disc, and they were sweating and giving it everything they had, this is the word that they would use. Struggle. We get our word agonize from this word. So what Paul is saying is when Epaphras goes to pray for you, let me tell you how Epaphras prays for you. Paul is basically saying, I've, I've snuck up on this guy's prayer life. I've eavesdropped on Epaphras while he's praying. And let me tell you what it looks like and sounds like. You know, you've been to those games and you've watched those athletes walk out there and you've watched them sweat and struggle in order to win those games. You've seen them get in the games and just they're... The, the blood vessels popping out on their arms because they're just pouring everything they've got into it. Well, that's what Epaphras looks like and sounds like when he prays for you. He gets down and he gets serious when he prays for you. Now, you see, a lot of times when we talk about prayer, we ask people to either pray we get well when we're sick or we ask people to pray for us that our problems go away. But when was the last time we asked someone to pray for us that we would grow in Christ? And he's saying that when we pray for someone to grow in Christ, to mature, that there's going to be a place that we get in the prayer for really serious with God where we get down and we agonize in prayer for them. Where it's going to be tough. Folks, I believe that any church that seriously moves forward and carrying out what God has for them and becoming what God would have us to become as a church is going to require, has to have some intercessors in that congregation who get along with God on a regular basis and pray that church through. Who don't just say, God bless our church, but say, Lord, grow us, mature us, shape us to be like Jesus. You see, when we get serious in praying like that for the body of Christ, it is tough prayer. It does drain us when we pray like that. But God hears and God honors. When I was a student at Liberty, we went to Thomas Road Baptist Church, and I remember Dr. Falwell saying to us, if you want to see the secret of this church... It's not in the worship services. He says, come here on Sunday evening at 5 o'clock 
and there's a room up on the hill, a Sunday school classroom, and he says, ever since the first Sunday that this church opened, he says, we've had a group of intercessors that get together and pray from 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock for this church. He says, that's the secret of Thomas Road Baptist Church. It's not in the music programs, not in the pastor. It's in a group of intercessors who go before God once a week and stay before God for an hour asking Him to move and to work in His church. Now, we all fight spiritual laziness, which means we don't really want to pray. Sometimes we fight pride, which means we want to try to solve the problems ourselves. But if we would just go before the Lord, and notice how Epaphras prayed for them. Verse 12. He says, he prays that you, verse 12, may stand firm. It's a fascinating word that he uses there for standing firm. It means to be stable in the midst of shocks. Have have any of you ever lived through an earthquake? Everything is as calm as it can be, and all of a sudden everything starts shaking. And that's the idea here. When the shaking starts happening, when the shocks come to you, he's praying that you stand firm. You see, the the shocks are going to come to us. We We cannot stop the earthquakes. But what Epaphras is praying is, Lord, when the shaking starts, when the spiritual earthquakes come, I'm praying that the brothers and sisters in Colossae will stand firm. Now, they were struggling because what they were, the shock they were facing more than any other was who's Jesus and is he really supreme? That was the shock that they were having to endure. And he's praying, Lord, keep them firm. Keep them focused on Jesus and help them to stay focused and be grounded in the fact that he is supreme. Notice verse 12. It says, I'm praying that they may stand and be mature. Be mature. The idea there is that they are being shaped in their inner character to be like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to talk like Jesus. I'm praying that they be mature. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Maturity hardly ever comes easy. Maturity hardly ever comes easy. We love to talk about maturity. But I've never, I I don't know if I've ever seen maturity in life come easy. Maturity always comes, as they like to say in the school of hard knocks. It comes at difficult times. So when I'm praying that I grow in Christ and that I mature, it doesn't mean that God's going to go to town making my life a nice stroll on easy street. It means the difficulties are going to start. Some of you that have been serving Jesus for 30 and 40 years, let me ask you a question. You want to raise your hand if you want. Has it gotten any easier or has it gotten tougher? How many of you all found it gets tougher? All right, a bunch of hands. (laughs) I used to think that the the farther you went with Christ, the, the easier it got. So at about the 20-year point, I began to draw attention to the Lord that this thing is not getting easier, and I thought you were going to make it easier, and you really need to start answering prayer and making it easier, God. And he seemed to ignore that prayer. You see, the maturity process gets more difficult and more difficult. You know, I remember when my son took his first step. We were all excited and happy, and I can remember right where it happened. 
But now my son is 25 years of age. He's having to take steps in his career, in his relationships, etc., that are umpteen times more difficult than that little step he took. Why? Because that's where maturity takes us. That's what maturity produces. And so when he matures us in the character of Jesus, it's tough. But man, the results are worth it. Verse 12, he says, I want you to pray that you will be fully assured. In other words, that you will have confidence. You'll have confidence in the supremacy of the person of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that I face in life that Jesus is not over and above and Lord of. Nothing. If you want to sleep good at night, lay down in the bed, look up at the ceiling, and say there's nothing that can get to me that he is not Lord of. I'm going to tell you a little story, and I'm going to change a little bit of the wording of it and make it appropriate, okay? Dr. J. Frank Norris was pastor of the two largest Baptist churches in the country way back in probably about the 1920s. He pastored the First Baptist Church of Fort Worth, Texas, and the Temple Baptist Church of Detroit, Michigan simultaneously. And the way he did that was he preached in Fort Worth on Sunday morning, caught an airplane and flew to Detroit on Sunday night and preached at Temple Baptist on Sunday night. And the pastor that I had when I was in seminary was listening to Dr. Norris in a Q&A one day and asked him, he said, Dr. Norris, how in the world do you pastor two churches, one in Texas and one in Michigan at the same time, and, and keep your sanity? And he said, oh, it's simple. He said, I lay down at nighttime and I take my boots off and the whole world can just do whatever and I just go on to sleep. Now, my wife and I shared that story when we first got married, and my wife periodically, when I'm worried at nighttime, will look at me and say, Honey, take your boots off and go to sleep. <laughs> and what Norris is basically saying is, Yeah, I got all this responsibility, but when I get, sit down on the side of my bed at nighttime, I take my boots off, I lay back in the bed, and Jesus is Lord, I just go on to sleep, and I'm not going to worry about it. And when you and I know that Jesus really is Lord and we're living like that, we can sit down on the side of the bed and regardless of what's going on, we take our boots off and lay back in the bed and go on to sleep because he's taking care of and doing a whole lot better job than we can. Fully assured, fully confident in him that I belong to Jesus, that I am loved eternally, intensely by Jesus. Notice verse 12, the last part of it there. Fully assured where? In all the will of God. I know His will and I'm living His will out. Fully assured in all the will of God. Listen, if you and I live our lives yielded to Him, submitted to Him, maturing in Him, growing in Him, don't worry about the details of the will of God. He'll get it to you. My problem is not knowing the details of God's will. My problem is willing to be obedient to whatever He shows me. If I get the obedient part down, He takes care of all the detail issues. My struggle is the obedient part. And He says, you're going to be, I'm praying you're going to mature so that you'll be fully confident in all that God's got for you. Folks, the box of our lives 
What does it say at the bottom? Made with what? Fake ingredients or made with a real thing? Made with the fruits of the Spirit. Made with kindness. I'm going to forgive folks. I'm going to value people like God does. And I'm going to intercede for them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. And that, Lord, you are calling us to let you produce in us kindness. Lord, we live in a world of a lot of unkind things being said and done and people being unkind to each other. We live in a world that is thirsty and starving for some kind people. So God, help us to yield to the fullness of the Spirit as you then produce within us forgiveness for people. As you produce, Lord, within us a value for people. And as you, Lord, produce in us and through us an intercessory prayer ministry where we pray for people, Lord, that we seriously lift them before the Father God. And Lord, we pray for them to grow in Christ and to become, Lord, what you have for them. And Lord, you sensitize us to what's going on in their lives. And Lord, in that place, we just lift them before you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you've never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and chosen to follow him, then I want to invite you in just a moment as we sing to walk the aisle of this church And I'd love to take your hand as you give your life to Jesus and choose to follow Him. Best, greatest decision we can ever make in life. If you sense that God has been speaking to you, saying, I want you to be part of this church family and join with these folks here as they serve the Lord, then I invite you to come and join our fellowship here. If the Lord is speaking to you about rededicating or recommitting your life or a call into ministry, then I encourage you, to yield and surrender to that call. And if you just want to come and kneel around the front here, feel free and talk to the Lord. Father, have your way with us now in these moments when we respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing and come if you will.